Good day again, everyone. I've always been a reader. Even as a little kid, I would uh, go to bed with five or six books and uh, stay up for hours reading. Uh, and I'd also, I'd read books over and over again because we wouldn't have enough books for me to read. So I'd just read the same books again and again and again. Uh, so when we had kids, I got lots of the books that uh, I'd read as a kid. I went to my parents uh, and some that they'd kept and I got them for our kids. And one of the books I rediscovered was this one, uh, Naaman and the Little Maid. I think we've got a picture of the I found it on the internet. You can buy it secondhand still. Naaman and the Little Maid. It's a ladybird book. Uh, back then, normal publishers used to print Bible stories. You know, that was sort of part of what they did. Uh, and uh, this was just one of those great stories. But anyway, I read this book so many times as a kid. Uh, I knew it basically off by heart. Uh, and it's meant this has always been one of my favorite stories in the Bible. So uh, when it came to preaching two kings, there was no choice but that I had to preach two kings, chapter five, because I've never had the chance to preach on it before today. But I'm not preaching on the Ladybird book. I'm preaching on what it actually says in the Bible. Uh, and as we look at the story, we're going to see it's not just a great story. It's actually one of those wonderful stories in the Bible that teaches us about God's love for all people. Uh, that's one of the main themes of this story. But more than that, it teaches us what real faith looks like and what real repentance looks like. So come with me, 2 Kings chapter 5. Where are we in the story? Last week in chapter 4, we saw all these miracles that Elisha did for the people of Israel. And that's really important. So remember, uh, basically all of Israel had walked away from God by this point. That is the northern kingdom of Israel. They turned away from God. They were worshipping idols. But there was a small remnant of faithful people left, just a few thousand people who kept trusting the one true God. And and so we saw these stories of how God provided for some of those faithful people through Elisha last week. But now what happens is it's like the camera moves from Israel across to one of Israel's enemies, a country called Aram. uh, And we meet this great general called Naaman. uh, And he's the, the hero of the story, if you like. So let's look at it. My first heading is God is in control of everything. Come with me to verse one. It says, Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a great man in his master's sight and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a brave warrior, but he had a skin disease. Now, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria or Israel, he would cure him of his skin disease. So here we are, we've got this great man, but he is a pagan. Aram is one of Israel's enemies. He would have worshipped Rimon, one of the Baal gods. uh, And Naaman has this problem, something like leprosy uh, that he has. But then we also meet this poor little girl. We didn't even know her name. Uh, She's been stolen from Israel uh, and taken back as a slave. But she says, there is a man back home, uh, a prophet who would be able to cure you. And she's talking about Elisha at this point. So we've got this little nameless girl who is one of the faithful remnant of Israel. She's someone who actually knows God. She still trusts God. Even though we don't know her name, this little girl is is one of those heroes of the faith, if you like. Uh, But what I want you to notice here is how God is in control of all of this. You see, Christians often have a simplistic view of God's sovereignty, as we call it. 
Uh, when good things happen or things we perceive to be good, we say, oh, God is in control. How good is God? And, and so forth. But then when bad thing happens or things that we perceive to be bad things, we think the devil did it or, or, or something like that. God is so much bigger than our simplistic view of things. And you see this here. You see, even though this general was against Israel, any victory one was, look there at verse 1, because the Lord had given him the victory. See, God isn't just concerned with his people. God manages the whole world. God is in control of everything. God is sovereign even over Israel's enemies. And more than that, this little girl being captured was a horrible thing. You know, you can only imagine how horrible it would be taken into slavery in a, in a foreign land. But here again, we'll see how God uses her to bring about salvation. And he, God uses it to bring about salvation. So remember the wonderful truth. Even when horrible things happen, even when the bad guys are winning, God is in control. It's not like God is in control when the good things are happening and then it spirals out of his control. God is in control over it all and God is working for the good of those who love him, the book of Romans tells us. But let's move on. So my second heading is no faith in Israel, verses 5 to 8. So Naaman, he gets the king of Aram's permission. He sets off to Israel with massive gifts of silver and gold and precious clothes. And of course, he assumes any prophet this wonderful, any prophet who can do things like this, well, he'd be with the king. So he goes to the king of Israel, probably Jehoram, who we met a couple of weeks ago. Remember him back in chapter 3? And to say that Elisha and Jehoram have a complicated relationship would be understating it. uh, Because remember, he does not worship the one true God. Jehoram, he messes around with idols of Baal. And as I said, he and Elisha don't get along. Uh, And so Jehoram thinks this is a political move. He thinks, oh, the king of Aram is sending this guy to ask me to do something I can't do as an excuse to then invade Israel or or, or get out of an agreement or something like that. Because what hope have I got of healing a man of leprosy or something like it? Uh, So look at verse 7. It says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, am I God? killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease think it over and you'll see he's only picking a fight with me i find these kings just so sad he's just he knows about god you see how he says there am i god he doesn't even say am i baal or he says am i god because he knows only god can do this sort of thing he knows about god but it doesn't occur to him to turn and repent back to following that God and asking God to act. And I think you're meant to compare his lack of faith to the faith of the little girl. Just look back again at verse 3. She says, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his disease. Total confidence, he would do it. I hope you see the comparison. The king of Israel, who has all the advantages but refuses to know God, the little girl who you would expect would have forgotten God, who you would expect would have just sort of joined in with with where she's gone to and and worshipped their gods, she trusts God and believes his prophet can act. And you can't help but think of where Jesus talks about how the more you know, the more is expected of you. The more you know, the more is expected of you. Do not be like Jehoram who knew about God but didn't know or trust God. Now we turn to the high point of the story, though, what I've called God's amazing grace. Uh, Elisha hears what's happening. He, he, he sends a messenger to get Naaman to come to him. So Naaman and all his horses and chariots pull up out the front of Elisha's place. And we've seen how important people are meant to be treated this week, haven't we? When, you know, when the queen's carriage pulled up, 
Remember how little Princess Charlotte turned to her brother and said, you're meant to bow. You're meant to bow. Because that's what you do when an important person comes. Uh, you've seen what happens. Naaman is a very important man, but I love this. Elisha doesn't even come out to see him. It's like Elisha says, I'm hanging on the couch. No way in the world I'm coming out to talk to you. He sends out a messenger, Lude verse 10. Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. But Naaman can't believe it. You know, how, how can this guy be so rude to just send him on his way with, with, with a few instructions? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know how important I am? Look for verse 11. It says, but Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself, he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of Yahweh, his God. And he wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. See, Naaman feels humiliated. How could he not even come out and see me? I'm a great man. And more than that, he wasn't, Elisha wasn't offering him the religious experience he expected. It, surely he could have put on a bit of show for me. That's what the pagan prophets would do. They, they'd offer sacrifices and they'd dance around and they, they'd tear their clothes. Surely he could have put on a show. He could have waved his hands around a little bit, said a couple of prayers. And I don't want to go into this muddy little river, you know, the Jordan River. Even if you go, to, the Jordan River is very unimpressive. It, it's more like a creek. You know, Australia doesn't have good rivers, but, but even our rivers are better than the Jordan. It, you know, I, I could go home and get a better river than this, and one that's not brown. And see, at this point, Naaman is too proud to listen to God's answer to his problem. Now, I just want to pause at this point and draw out something for us. Why did Elisha do it this way, do you think? Why did Elisha stay inside, send out very basic instructions that, that don't seem all that exciting? Why didn't he come and introduce himself? Why didn't he put on a big show and cure Naaman? There's two reasons, I think. Firstly, Elisha wants Naaman to see that it isn't Elisha doing this. That's the first thing. He wants it to see that this is God doing this. It's not because Elisha is some magician the simplicity the the lack of show it shows this isn't some magic trick this is God at work uh, Naaman came thinking Elisha was like the pagan prophets you know with the ancient equivalent of the strobe lights and the smoke machines he came expecting to buy a miracle and Elisha is showing him this is the real God of the universe at work secondly I think Elisha wants to humble Naaman he wants to make him realize he needs to bow before God. You don't buy God. God opposes the proud. God lifts up the humble. And the question is, is Naaman willing to humble himself? Is he willing to set aside his pride and do what God asked him to do, even when it looks weak, even when it looks foolish, even when it looks unimpressive? I can't help, as I've read this, but think of people's response today to the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to the proud. It's foolishness to people who are not willing to humble themselves and say, I'm a sinner who, who needs God's forgiveness. The idea that God would lower himself and become a man, especially an unimpressive man, a, a, a carpenter from Nazareth, the idea that his death could, could pay the price for our sins Jews were offended by it and Greeks laughed at it, Paul says. And people still do that today. And as I said, more than that, the gospel requires us to humble ourselves. It requires us to say, 
I actually need it. I need forgiveness. I'm a sinner who, who deserves God's judgment. I need to be washed clean. See, to become a Christian is to fall on your knees and trust in Jesus. The sad reality is that many, many people are like Naaman at this point of the story. The gospel is foolishness to them. They want something more impressive or they're too proud to admit that they need it. But we know that the weak and foolish message of the cross is the power of God for salvation. At least I pray we know that. And so Naaman, he's storming off home, but praise God for Naaman's servants. Do you see how it's the unimpressive people in this story who, who turn him around? So it was the little girl who sent him off to Israel. Now it's his servants. They challenge him. Look at verse 13. But his servants approached and said to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you wash and be clean? I think that's a really beautiful comment. It's, it's not like he's asking you to do something hard. Just give it a go. What, what loss is it to, to wander over to the Jordan and dip yourself in seven times? Have a go. And so Naaman does. He gives it a go. Look at verse 14. So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy and he was clean. And it's just this wonderful moment of healing. And again, I can't but help think of the gospel message. See, I sometimes say to people, all God asks is that you put your trust in Jesus. It is so simple. All God wants you to do is put your trust in Jesus. God says, come and be washed. It's not hard. Just do it. But people are too proud, unlike Naaman. Well, if the story ended there, it would be great enough. But it's what comes next that's actually my favorite part of the story. So come with me to responding to God's grace from verse 15. Naaman can't believe it. The God of Israel has cured him. And so Naaman comes to a real and living faith in God. Naaman actually realizes the truth about the world. He realized there is only one God. His, his gods are just blocks of wood. There is only one God, the God of Israel. He realizes that that one true God deserves his worship because he deserves to be worshipped by every person on earth. Look at verse 15. It says, Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore... Please accept a gift from your servant. Do you see the change in attitude from before? There's no, who do you think I am? Uh, don't you realize who I am like before? The, the arrogant general, what does he call himself now? Look there. He calls himself a servant of God and his prophet. The arrogant general has been humbled. And so he wants to make a gift. It's actually a wonderful gesture. He has come to know God. God has healed him. And so he wants to give a gift. But Elisha won't accept it. Look at verse 16. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, I stand before him, I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. Why was Elisha so insistent that he would not take a gift? Well, again, two reasons, I think. It's the same as before. He wants Naaman to know this was God, not him. Don't give me a gift. It's God that did it. Don't give me a gift. More than that. It's because he wanted Naaman to know you do not buy God's grace. I think this is the key point of this story. You do not buy God's grace. It's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? God's wonderful free gift of salvation. You do not pay for the grace of God. You do not earn it. You accept it by faith. And so even though he can't give a gift, 
Naaman's obvious faith and repentance is so wonderful. Look at verse 17. Naaman responded, if not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will no longer offer a burnt burnt offering or a sacrifice to any other God but to Yahweh. You see what he wants to do? He, he, He is totally converted. He's got to go back to his country. He doesn't want to worship the Baals anymore. He he wants to take a little bit of Israel home with him. He he can't come to the temple. He can't come every, every week, every month, every year to the temple, but he still wants to do the right thing. Now, because we live after Jesus and because we've just studied the book of Hebrews, we say, hang on, he's got it wrong. You don't need a little bit of Israel to worship God. I hope you think that. I hope you think, yeah, we learned that. The temple, we don't need the temple. You you can worship God anywhere. You worship God in spirit and and in truth. We know you don't need holy ground. So you you can quibble about whether he needed to do this or not, but don't miss how wonderful it is. See, for him, with his understanding, freshly converted at that time, he is going back to a place that hates God. And he and his wife and that little servant girl will probably be the only people there who know God. The only people who stand up and say, we worship the one true God, you have to think at this point, if only more people in Israel had faith like him. Yes, we now know more than him, but he's actually a wonderful model for us of true conversion. He turns from idols to worship the one true God. I think Naaman is a model for us as we go into our families, as we go into our schools, as we go into our unis, as our workplaces, and we say, I worship the one true God. I follow Jesus and I'm not ashamed of it. And what I love is that he's already seeing the costs, he's already seeing the consequences of following the Lord. So look at verse 18. He says, however, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimon to worship, and I, as his right-hand man, bow in the temple of Rimon, when I bow in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. See, Naaman knows, I'm going to go back there, and there are going to be expectations on me. I'm the king's right-hand man. I'm going to have to go into the pagan temple with my king, and if I don't bow, I will die. But straight away, his conscience is torn about it. Do you see that? Straight away, he's trying to work out, how am I going to deal with this? I've been, the equivalent of, I've become a Christian, how do I now deal with my non-Christian family? I've, I've become a Christian, how do I need, deal with this non-Christian world that I've got to work in and live in? Straight away, he sees, if you follow God alone, you're going to have to make hard choices. Now, now some people might say, he doesn't quite get it. Why doesn't he say, I'm not going into the temple of Rimon and I'm not going to bow and they can kill me if they like. You know, people might say that, but do you notice how Elisha says, go in peace? See, I think if it was an Israelite, he would say, no, you don't bow in the temple of Rimon. But he knows the trajectory this man is on. He knows this man is newly converted and trying to work out, how do I do this? In time, he might find a way to talk to his master and deal with the problem. But now, how wonderful is it that he's grappling with it? How wonderful is it that he sees following the true God impacts everything. He hasn't got it all worked out yet, but wow, isn't he on a good path? I wish more Christians who had been Christians for years had as sensitive a conscience as Naaman did. 
I wish more of us realised we've got to think hard about what it means to follow the Lord in every situation. And sometimes we'll get it right, sometimes we'll get it wrong. I wish we were wor- as worried about how to please God as Naaman is. He is a wonderful example of true conversion. It's like how Paul describes the impact of the gospel on the Thessalonians. It'll come up on the screen. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1 chapter 9. He says, for they, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Naaman is one of the most wonderful moments of the Old Testament. He is a, a little shadow of what happened when Jesus came and the gospel went out to the nations. He is a shadow of what has happened for us. How we have had our eyes opened and we have been able to turn from worshipping the things of this world, to worship God. See, it's what you do when you become a Christian. You turn away from what you used to live for to serve the living and true God. And if you want an example to follow, I reckon you could do a lot worse than Naaman. Now, we wish the story ended there and our Bible reading ended there, but there's one last sad scene. You're going to have to look at your Bibles to see it. Uh, And this is very sad because it's about the danger of denying God's grace. And this is verses 20 to 29. We didn't uh, read this final part of the story, but basically Gehazi, Elisha's servant, is listening in and he cannot believe that Elisha turned down a gift from a rich foreigner. He's like, come on, we could do with that cash. And so he chases after Naaman and he makes up a story to try and con him out of some of his spare cash. Now, Naaman would have assumed that he was acting on Elisha's behalf. Naaman would have assumed this was Elisha's way of saying, no, no but still getting the gift. And, and we know this is, in many cultures, this is the way it works. There's a lot of cultures where you say no, but it means yes. And everyone understands it at the time. That's what Naaman w- would have thought was going on here. Elisha said no, now he sends his, his servant to get the money. So Naaman gives him even more than he asked for because he believes this is a gift for Elisha and for God. So Elisha takes this, the, sorry, uh, the servant takes this massive gift back and he hides it for himself. The thing is, he forgets he works for God's prophet. You, you cannot hide something from God's prophet. He gets back, Elisha says, where have you been? A bit like when God confronts Adam and Eve in the garden and asks them the question, where have you been? Well, Gehazi lies about it and so look at verse 26. But Elisha questioned him, wasn't my spirit there when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to accept money and clothes, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence, diseased, white as snow. And you are meant to see the contrast here. The faithful foreigner who was God's enemy is healed, but the slippery Israelite who should have known better is judged. Now, what was the heart of Gehazi's sin? I mean, he lied. That's a sin. That's breaking the commandments. He lied both to Naaman and to Elisha. He was greedy and covetous. That's another commandment broken. He sinned in multiple ways. But the worst thing he did, the reason he is judged, is he distorted the truth about God. That's why he's judged. He is undercutting the grace of God. He is letting Naaman believe you can bribe God. He, he is letting Naaman believe God is just like all the other pagan gods, just after your money. 
and you bribe him with offerings to do good things for you and it's just a transaction. It is a horrible thing to distort the truth about God and especially a horrible thing to deny the grace of God. When the gospel was first preached to the Gentiles, false teachers followed Paul around and said, faith in Jesus is not enough. You're not saved by grace alone. You're not saved by faith alone. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, you need to trust in Jesus to be saved, they said, but you need to do more than that. You need to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised. Faith was not enough. You need faith plus works to be saved. They were undercutting the grace of God. And this is what Paul wrote. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. It is a horrible sin to distort the gospel. It's a horrible sin to deny God's grace, and yet churches and denominations have done it for 2,000 years since the gospel was first preached. And it's why we needed the Reformation when people like Martin Luther took us back to the Bible and said, no, it's grace alone. It's a free gift of God. It's by faith alone, not by works so that no one can boast. You accept God's free gift by trusting in Jesus. It's faith in Christ alone. And so never forget those truths. Never let someone else deny them for you. Never let someone teach you a different gospel. That is what Naaman came to understand. And I pray it's what we all understand as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story of Naaman, this story of faith and repentance. And we thank you that he came to understand there is one God, the God of Israel, and that that God saves us by grace. And Father, we thank you that we have come to understand that gospel, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. And we pray that we would never turn away from that message and never deny it. In Jesus' name, amen.